0: Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to the United States Study Center online. My name is Ashley Townsend, and I am the Director of Foreign Policy and Defense at the US Study Center, and I'm very pleased uh, today to be joined uh, by my friend and and colleague over in the United States, uh, Christian Brose, um, the author of the book we will discuss today, The Kill Chain. I'm going to turn over to Christian and introduce him in a moment, but a little bit of a Uh, housekeeping to get uh, started first. Uh, Most importantly, before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and future. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are on, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and future as well. Folks, we have, um, I would say the webinar today, which is the one that I've been most looking forward to uh, this year and since we've started doing um, online webinars at the US Study Center. Um, I'm not sure if you can all see me at the moment. I think uh, we're about to switch over to the video part of today. I'll just wait for that to happen. Oh, there we go. I was gonna hold that book up myself. Um, We're here today to speak about Chris's fantastic uh, new book, The Kill Chain. Let me introduce Chris, and I'm going to speak briefly about The Kill Chain. Uh, Chris um, has spent the best part of the last uh, 10 years working in the United States as Staff Director on the Senate Armed Services Committee on Capitol Hill, where he worked as well as the Senior Advisor to uh, the late and great Senator John McCain. Um, The Senate Armed Services Committee, for those of you in Australia who aren't quite familiar with the way uh, the US administration works is essentially the committee in Congress that at the end of the day makes many of the hard decisions about how the United States will spend money on what it will spend its money how much it will spend, and how it will work with the Department of Defense to go after um, the United States' most important strategic priorities. And it does so very much in conjunction with the Department of Defense, as well as with the White House and other um, interests in the United States' uh, defense industrial complex. Um, but in, d- in addition to that, uh, Chris's um, well, since leaving since leaving Capitol Hill rather, Chris has moved over to Andrel Industries on the west coast where he's chief strategy officer and is now working in a technology startup that is making its way and making its way big into the United States national defense community with contracts starting to uh um eventuate uh with defense clients in the United States which is no small feat and prior to all of that he was speechwriter to two secretaries of state uh both Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice and also a member of the state department's uh Policy planning staff. Uh, Chris was also instrumental in uh, helping the United States Study Center facilitate um, a few years back now a visit to Australia by Senator John McCain, uh, which Chris I believe was was one of uh, one of his last overseas uh, trips, um, and certainly the last major speech he gave uh, overseas, and and which really uh, did. Um, get a lot of attention here in Australia with Senator McCain uh, laying out, if you like, um, the core principles at stake in U.S. interests and and global values, as well as U.S. strategic priorities at a time when many of us here were getting to grips with what the Trump administration uh, would mean for Australia. Uh, So, Chris, welcome.
1: Great. No, thank you so much, Ash. It's great to be with you.
0: Thanks. And look, uh, you're sitting over there in in the West Coast. I'm going to hold this up now it's uh it's the cover is probably as relaxed, I think as you're looking there with uh, the <laughs> jungle scenery behind you uh This is the book, ladies and gentlemen, the kill chain uh, It honestly is a fantastic read um We don't always do a buy it and buy it right now plug when we do um uh, book launches but this is both the first launch of of chris's book internationally uh but also it's it's one of those books that you that you, is refreshing because uh, what Chris has done is, I think, with the benefit of more than a decade working these issues, um, is he's, he's tried to put together a very constructive uh, critique of the system in which he worked. It's not a spill-all gossip piece, uh, nor is it a piece that's trying to put the knife into one part of his former, I mean, his, the former bureaucracy in which he worked vis-a-vis another. It's a fair book. It's a very, very sobering read. Uh, it's a page-turner. And I think it's one that really every Australian interested in these issues um, should read because it, it really zeroes in on two, I think fundamentally important points, which I'm gonna get Chris to explain uh, for all of us right now. Uh, the first is that the United States is losing um, its competitive technological strategic edge vis-a-vis China right now in the Western Pacific. And that'll have profound implications for, for the alliance that we have with the United States but also for stability in our region and for the capacity of the United States to play the role that it has played for 70 years in our part of the world. The second part of that is probably more obscure for many folks here in Australia. And that's this, it's that at the same time as the, this, this challenge has been dawning on, on America, another one has been dawning within the United States. And that is that to a greater, to a greater or lesser extent, the Department of Defense and the US military has, has been left behind Um, by the most important technological revolution of our time, the information revolution. And that's something which I think many people here in Australia think can't be the case. The United States is the most sophisticated advanced military power in history. Uh, But Chris will tell us, I think, a little bit why the United States has been ambushed by the future. Chris, over to you. Yeah,
1: I, I think you summed it up very well. Um, you know, Basically, the, the point that I make in the book is that uh, the U.S. military, the Department of Defense, U.S. national defense more broadly, has been disrupted on two fronts. Um, we've been disrupted by a strategic competitor in the form of China, and we've been uh, disrupted by this kind of emerging technological revolution that uh, really started with the information revolution in the 1980s, 1990s, um, and has only accelerated over the past 10 to 15 years, primarily in the commercial world. Um, From the standpoint of the competitor, um, basically the Chinese military has gone to school on the United States uh, really since the first Gulf War, and they have analyzed how we fight, how we build military systems. Uh, They've looked at all the core assumptions that we make uh, as to how we project power overseas, how we fight wars, Um, and they have purpose-built a military to call into question um, all of those core assumptions. Um, And this has happened, you know, not like a hurricane, it didn't just kind of hit us one day. Um, This has been methodical, it's been systemic. uh, And it's been, you know, a focused effort on the part of China for probably the past 25 years or so. Um, And I think that it's, uh, as I kind of argue in the book, it's something that most Americans don't realize how far it's come, um, how much progress they've made, uh, and the trajectory that they're on when you start adding in Um, you know, kind of the civil military fusion and sort of the weaponization of emerging technologies like artificial intelligence and autonomous systems and uh, other technologies like that that China's very much embarked upon. Um, So, you know, on the one hand, you have this sort of strategic disruption in the form of a competitor that has uh, systematically, you know, built a military to undermine uh, US national defense, and done so at a time where for the better part of two decades, you know, United States has been very focused on counterterrorism operations, the broader Middle East, you know, kind of instability in that part of the world. Um, the, the second disruption, which is, you know, every bit is significant, uh, you know, has to do with emerging technology. And, you know, your your uh your your point about how DOD has been left behind, how national defense has been left behind is is really right. And you know, what I try to underscore in the book is just, you know. How significant this is, because I think most Americans and I think most people around the world assume that, you know, there's, uh, you know, if if there's any part of the U.S. government that's functioning relatively well, uh, you know, it's it's our military, it's our Defense Department, and there's a lot of that that is true. But um, from a technological standpoint, um, we have been resting on our laurels for a very long period of time. Um, We have become overly reliant on, you know, very large, exquisite, you know, very expensive, very manpower intensive military systems. Um, And we have, you know, ultimately been sort of, you know, optimizing for smaller and smaller numbers of those systems. Um, And meanwhile, what you've seen in the, uh, really in the commercial world, um, led by companies that oftentimes have nothing to do with national defense whatsoever and have no desire to have anything to do with national defense, uh, has been the development of, Uh, Really, an explosion of you know artificial intelligence, machine learning, computer vision, um, you know, kind of autonomy, um, you know, kind of advanced networking. um, All these kinds of capabilities that have delivered us many of these technological benefits that we almost have come to take for granted in the Internet of Things and uh, the access to information, the fact that we kind of walk around every day with uh, you know kind of intelligent machines and processes, kind of providing us recommendations about things we might want to do, information we might need, having it all at our fingertips. Um, this is not something that exists in you know, U.S. national defense. Um, you know, some of the points that I make in the book just to kind of draw this out and make this real for people, um, you know, when you look at a system like the F-35, which is an exquisite weapon system, um, you know, which, which has garnered the name the flying supercomputer because of uh, just the computer power, uh, the processing power, Um, sort of the sensor fusion that that system brings to bear, Um, you know, when you actually look at the core processor inside of that weapon system, um, and you compare it to, you know, what is, you know, kind of a a best in breed commercial uh, embedded computer that is available on a self-driving car, commercial car, truck. um, That commercial computer is hundreds of times more capable than the system, the processor, uh, on the most capable kind of advanced supercomputer inside of the Department of Defense, you know, from a weapon system standpoint. Um, and, and a lot of this has to do with the fact that, you know, our our national defense kind of establishment, um, it knows how to build hardware, it knows how to build ships and vehicles and, uh, you know, aircraft and things like that. Um, it doesn't know how to build battle networks, it doesn't know how to, you know, weaponize data, um, how to build sort of advanced communications networks. Um, you know, and certainly, uh, from the standpoint of building them around these emerging technologies in a way that allow you to automate a lot of the processes that, um, you know, that, that are now possible to automate so that human beings can work faster, make better decisions. Um, this is still done heavily manually inside the Department of Defense. It's still very stovepiped um, to an extent that you know, the, the two fifth generation uh, aircraft that we operate, the F-35 and F-22. Um, are incapable of actually sharing data together in a digital sense. Um, you know, the, the only way that they can kind of know where each other are and, and really communicate information is ultimately kind of pilots talking on radios, which is no different than the way we used to do it, uh, you know, a generation, two generations ago. So, you know, we, uh, we've fallen behind to a, to a very disturbing extent. Um, and I think we have a lot of catching up to do.
0: Yeah, and look, um, I mean, I want to I want to zero in on, on on those two points um, uh, a little bit: the Western Pacific balance and and the the technological revolution, um, uh, unembraced if not if not missed so far. In a moment, but first, I want to I want to come to the title of your book, uh, "The Kill Chain." I mean, uh, in in the book, you you tease out a number of of scenarios, or sorry, number of, of vignettes, really, um, that I think get to some of the problems and some of the solutions with the way the United States approaches uh, the kill chain. And that is to say, uh, the way that they understand the battlefield, that operators understand the battlefield, make decisions, communicate those decisions and then act upon them. You, you talk about visiting operation centers, military operation centers in the Middle East um, that are rooms full of computers, sometimes the size of basketball courts, all wired up. Uh, with people shouting orders from one side to the other to try and input data from one system to another manually, you talk about all of the new sensors that the United States um, has started to develop, sometimes inexpensively, sometimes very expensively. Different forms of data that are collected by DOD and that sort of evaporate um, and not used by the Department of Defense because of a lack of machine learning algorithms and investments that can process that data. That same data, by the way, which were the little uh, kernels of information uh, that made Google what it is today in terms of a, a, one of the world's most valuable companies. Um, right. This level of, of, of almost getting at some of the sophisticated technologies, um, uh, 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 um, processes of the future, but not being able to integrate it, I think is sort of at the heart of, of your criticism of the United States kill chain and capacity to close the kill chain today. Is that right? Can you explain that uh, for a for a general audience?
1: Yeah. So the the reason I kind of embrace the idea of the kill chain, which is, you know, which is a term that kind of everyone inside the Department of Defense in the United States, you know, many of our core allies are very familiar with, but really everybody who's kind of outside of that is probably never heard of. Um, you know, I, I, I embrace the idea, nonetheless, because to me, it actually sums up very neatly the outcomes that we're actually building militaries to achieve. You know, kind of my core criticism or one of my core criticisms of our, our system in the United States is that we are optimized to produce uh, inputs um, rather than outcomes. Um, the way we define our requirements, the way we build budgets, the way we um, kind of program money, um, the way we build military systems, um, all of it is geared around the inputs and the sort of the, the platforms themselves, um, which totally misses the mark. Uh, you know, ultimately what we're trying to, to build military forces to do and operate them to do um, is this outcome that in, in DOD or defense parlance is referred to as the kill chain. And it's, it is a process, um, as you kind of laid out a second ago, that, that starts with generating understanding. Um, just orienting yourself, understanding what's happening in an area where militaries are competing on a battlefield or elsewhere, um, that leads to decision making. You know, human decision making about what actions to take, what to do, um, in order to gain military advantage, uh, and that then leads into actually the actions themselves. You know, commanding and controlling effects on the battlefield to, um, to kind of effectuate your will. Um, it is a sequential process, you know, you don't want to make decisions or take actions in the event or in the absence of understanding, you know, that usually leads to mistakes and fatal ones at that. Um, it is a process that, um, you know, leads you to think differently about the kinds of military systems that, uh, that you want and that you need, um, you know, rather than being so fixated on The number of systems we need, you know, a 355 ship Navy a 386 squadron Air Force, the things that are very easy to count, the things that are very easy to measure, you know, that allow kind of bureaucracies to fight for um, their portion of the budget um, because they result or sort of, um, uh, you know, kind of can be summarized very neatly in sort of bumper stickers. Um, You know, the kill chain is really something that is focused on um, how militaries achieve comparative advantage on the battlefield. And you know, ultimately for me, it's, it's less about the technologies and capabilities that enable a military to achieve that process of understanding decision-making and action. Um, you know, those, are, those are just kind of instrumental. Um, but ultimately what you're seeking to do is move through that process quickly, uh, effectively, and, and in a scalable way so that you can go through over and over and over again, um, that process of understanding, decision making, and action. Um, for me, it was also, you know, a helpful way or a helpful lens through which to view this question of emerging technology. Where, you know, again, we we uh, ultimately are talking about how human beings are going to relate to increasingly intelligent and autonomous machines and systems. Um, and and for me, you know, that that kill chain sort of puts a very clear, uh, you know, kind of focus on the fact that what we are talking about is very different than you know, commercial technology. I mean, this is matters of war and peace, life and death. Um, It's something that we have to, uh, uh, you know, kind of um, accept and and embrace, you know, very soberly. Um, And ultimately I think, you know, it's something that the the human being has to be at the center at. Um, You know, what we are ultimately talking about in the construction of technology and military capabilities are tools that enable and facilitate better human understanding, better human decision-making, um, and and human action, or at least action over which humans have agency and accountability, um, that to me is the core of this whole thing. And I think it's a it's a helpful framing for how to think about all of the different issues at play when we're talking about defense and technology.
0: Yeah, and then I think if we if we take that um, that idea of the kill chain and that idea of, of of updating the kill chain for the future, and we then apply it to the Western Pacific, I think we get we really get to some of the parts of the book that are most Urgent uh, in, in my view. I mean, you paint a picture of, of future warfare, potentially future warfare in the Western Pacific. And, and really, just as a side here, as a way of, of, of painting a picture about the kinds of systems that are needed to prevent future warfare through deterrence, of course. But, but nonetheless, you paint you paint this picture of the future where, 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 where warfare is characterized by the, the ubiquity and the speed, the superhuman speed of advanced technologies. Um, that are being mobilized both ways, or at least that will be mobilized against the United States and its allies, if China is successful here in the Western Pacific in its Made in China 2020 campaign, in its sorry 2030 campaign, in its efforts to make China the most um, uh, uh, technologically advanced great power on the planet in the coming decade. Uh, and, and you know, I, think, I guess the point about this is that the speed and the space of, of, of conflict is gonna be like it never has been uh, before where you have networks, of digital intelligent machines that are able to, to sense, to share information, and then to shoot, to use your framework um, at targets rapidly, um, at the speed of light in some cases, uh, and that will require um, the kinds of investments in similarly uh, potent, but also defensively oriented systems uh, by the United States if they even want to be in the position, if the United States even wants to be in a position to hold the line in parts of the Western Pacific. We see a a little bit of it now, the proliferation of Chinese ballistic missiles and cruise missiles here in the Western Pacific is already causing serious problems um, for US access and influence in the region, for allied access and influence in the region. Uh, But it's all gonna get um, quite a lot worse. And your answer to this problem um, is, is battle networks is investing in battle networks by fusing the technology of the future with the kinds of, of effects that will be required. Can you explain what a battle network is, uh, again, for a general audience, and, and how the United States should go about investing in building one that can withstand that sort of future you've just teased out?
1: Yeah, so you know, in, in the book, I try, to, I, I try to kind of boil it down to its essence. And for me, a battle network is it's people and things. Um, and with respect to the things, they're exactly as you said, they're uh, things that sense, you know, that gather information, make sense of information. Um, they're things that shoot, you know, and, and by shooting, I think we mean, you know, sort of uh, creating effects, you know, whether it's kinetic effects, lethal sure. effects, or kind of non-kinetic uh, electronic warfare, cyber effects, etc. Um, and then it's things that facilitate the movement of information between, um, you know, deployed military systems. Um, you know, I, I tend to focus less on, you know, what are the specific, uh, you know, kind of nodes in that network, you know, is it an aircraft carrier? Is it, you know, a, a, you know, a bomber? Um, I focus more on the ability to bring, you know, kind of mass to the battlefield, um, and then to operate at speeds that we haven't seen before. I think those are the two things that, um, you know, as I try to, to think through kind of what are, the, what are the real effects of this emerging technological revolution going to be on national defense? It's, it's, it's speed and scale. Um, You know, you mentioned speed and I think hit it, hit it well. Um, You know, we do things on timelines now that are, you know, hours, days, weeks, months, in some cases, Um, we're going to have to get that down to, you know, seconds, minutes. Um, Because ultimately what we're, you know, what we're, you know, what we're talking about here are, you know, systems, machines that are going to be much more capable of doing things on their own with limited human kind of direct control. Um, you know, we have a lot of quote unquote, unmanned systems uh, in the United States military right now, as does Australia. Um, but when you really kind of look under the hood, there are exquisite numbers of human beings that are required to make those platforms operationally relevant. I mean, you look at, a, you know, a predator or a reaper unmanned aircraft, Um, Almost every task that that system is performing, you know, from piloting it to steering the sensors to processing the data that's coming off of those sensors, it's all done manually. Um, You know, so we have a a military built around, you know, kind of many people to a single platform. Um, And as those platforms become more autonomous, more intelligent, um, we're going to be able to move to a military where you have many platforms to a single person. Um, Where you have one person who's capable of commanding and controlling larger numbers of more autonomous systems uh, without having to control the, you know, kind of the, um, you know, everything that that system does, Um, it's going to be able to delegate, you know, more responsibility, um, more of those military tasks um, for kind of rudimentary things, collecting information, making sense of information, surfacing insights, um, and then sort of orchestrating the, the decisions or effects that a human being wants to, uh, wants to carry out. Um, you know, that is gonna enable a growth in battle networks, you know, in terms of the sheer quantity of systems that are going to be fieldable. Um, it, I would argue kind of an exponential increase as that ratio of humans to machines is inverted. Um, with that scale comes speed, just the ability of those systems to be ubiquitous, to be everywhere, sensing, collecting information, um, you know, closing down places to hide, um, being able to direct effects against systems once they're found, that's going to make them very difficult to survive. Um, and I think, you know, to your point, the, the, the net effect of that for the United States is going to be that if we aren't more physically present and forward present in the Asia Pacific region, um, you know, we're, we're going to be commuting to a fight that's going to long have been over by the time we show up to it. Um, we are not going to be able to rely upon, as we have for many years, these very small numbers of large, expensive, exquisite manual platforms. Um, we're going to have to shift to a, uh, a battle network built around almost the opposite, you know, much larger numbers of smaller, cheaper, uh, much more autonomous systems um, that can be replenished very quickly when they're, when they're lost uh, in military operations or in combat.
0: Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, that gets to the heart of, of some of the, the, the capability changes that are required. I mean, shifting from crews per platform to platforms per cruise is the framework. Uh, what that means in practice is also um, that you're looking at unmanned systems um, of which you can buy many of that are either cheaper or more um, uh, attributable because they don't have humans on board, um, but are also more resilient um, when it comes to particularly networks um, of, of sensor drones, for example, uh, because you can lose any one of them, any number of them, um, and, and yet not lose the overall picture. You're sharing less data between platforms. You're not shipping it all home. The, right. It's a full court press rather than homeland, uh, rather than a hub and spokes model, rather. And so that, yep. that makes you more agile. Um, but when it comes to those, those actual, those new platforms, and let's just zero in on two here. Uh, you speak a bit in the book about um, um, the, the, the Valkyrie, um, the, the 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 Air, the Air Force's drone, uh, and you also speak a little bit about the Orca, which is a potential um, complement or replacement to a Virginia-class submarine. Respectively, and we're speaking generally here, you could buy 20 to 30 of those unmanned systems for every one of the capital investments that are currently being made. And yet, you've talked about in the book how, I mean, with those systems, we're not yet buying them in mass, that's probably enough for the operational requirements, Um, but we're also not buying them or planning to buy them. The United States is not buying them or planning to buy them at a scale that makes the development of those in other forms of advanced, um, you know, you know, technologically um, pushing the boundaries, capabilities viable for Silicon Valley companies. Um, So that actually poses a structural problem for the kinds of defense innovation that you
1: want, doesn't it? Uh, it does. I mean, I think the um, the value of having a military built around larger numbers of lower cost things is that it reduces the barrier to entry for new entrants who want to come in and, and work in national defense. Um, I mean, I also think it has the benefit of adding up to a superior capability because, you know, you you are ultimately putting mass back on the battlefield in your favor. Um, and, you know, that's the thing about military systems is, you know, even the most exquisite system is not capable of being in uh, two places at the same time. Um, you know, as, as the old saying goes, quantity has a quality all of its own. Um, and, and we now are, I think, capable of building a military at scale uh, or a military that scales um, independently of additional manpower and additional cost, um, which has always been the factors that have allowed us to build larger... Uh, larger scale militaries Um, from the technological standpoint I think the challenge for national defense from the United States standpoint um, really is more conceptual at this stage which is thinking through what we actually want these systems to do so you mentioned the you know the the Valkyrie system you know the kind of low-cost attritable aircraft uh, program that the Air Force has embarked upon Um, you know there's been a debate for many years over what role that system is going to play Um, And we're having sort of theological arguments about, uh, you know, is it going to be kind of fighter escort? Is it going to be, you know, kind of ground attack? Is it going to be, you know, a comms node? Um, And, you know, my answer is just start building it, (laughs) Um, you know, just start moving forward, you know, pick a mission and move out and then add more as it becomes more capable. Um, You know, ultimately, I think that's the only way we're going to move into this future is we're going to have to experiment our way into it. Um, and, the, and the value of these systems uh, is because they're lower cost, we can, we can afford to take more risk. Um, it's not like, you know, we're embarking upon, you know, a 15-year shipbuilding program. Um, you know, these are, relatively speaking, you know, lower cost systems that uh, we can afford to take risk um, and, and uh, begin to work out sort of the technological details uh, and attributes that they're going to need to have. And which, frankly, I think, you know, we, we still have a lot of learning to do. Um, in terms of what is operationally desirable, um, what we want these systems to be capable of doing. Um, and then, you know, from a technology standpoint, you know, what are they, what, you know, what is the realm of the possible right now? Um, and what is, what is that technological boundary going to be able to, or, you know, uh, you know, where is it going to be in a year, two, three years from now? Um, that's something that we just need to start working through rather than, you know, planning for what we think is going to be true five years from now, uh, and assuming that's where we're going to end up. Um, this has to be a much more iterative process uh, than, than I think what we've had to date.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, look, I'm gonna come in a moment to, uh, to questions from from the audience. We've already got a number building up here, uh, Chris. So I'll, I'll start to pick them out in just a moment. But I wanted to get to sort of, I'll, I'll go to one quote from the book first. Uh, and that's about the way that you've sort of highlighted the urgency of all of this and the urgency of a world in which the United States is becoming a great power again and a great power that has at least one peer competitor uh, uh, and what the implications of that really are. And so I'll quote from the book, here you say that we need to relearn a lesson from history that we've we've largely forgotten during our three decades of uncontested dominance. The great powers are capable of limiting one another's ambitions and rendering many of each other's goals impractical or unachievable regardless of how desirable those goals may be. Great powers force each other to define their core interests, the things that each is truly willing to fight over, and then to make compromises and accommodations as necessary over the rest, lest competition descend into conflict. This is the messy, unsatisfying, often neglected other side of great power competition, and it is already the reality with China. I think this is a really a chilling extract for many people. You go on to say that America's goal must now be to deny China uh, the dominance that the United States used to enjoy in the Pacific, really inverting that strategic paradigm by, by agreeing with, 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 the, with the premise that the United States won't enjoy dominance again um, and needs to move fast to prevent China from achieving it itself. Uh, And that has very significant flow on implications, uh, not just for the United States and the defense of the US homeland, but also for allies themselves. Um, I'd like you to comment on that, but I'd also like you to maybe take a step back and and from your vantage point, um, well, from the experience you've had over the last 10, 15 years in the system, why is this a challenge that has been left to get
1: this bad? I think there's a lot of there's a lot of explanations for that. I mean, you know, look, part of the obvious explanation is that for the past two decades, you know, really in the aftermath of 9-11, you know, we were we were very much focused on a different set of problems. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I think that explanation only goes so far. You know, we were spending a lot of money on things that had nothing to do with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, And, you know, I would like to think that a superpower is capable of walking and chewing gum at the same time. I think part of the problem is that uh, you know we've been disrupted over a a you know relatively slow period of time, right? I mean, this wasn't like uh, you know a crisis that occurred one day uh, that sort of opened our eyes. This has been uh, you know kind of the, the the rise of China, the gathering of Chinese power has been something that's been playing out, as has their military modernization effort, you know, for the past you know several decades. Um, I, I think you know to go back to the core point, the the concern that I had as I was kind of working in the Senate was that um, we we just weren't fully accounting for the reality of the rise of China and all of its kind of, you know, significance. Um, you know, when when we talk about great power competition, you know, we, uh, we talk of China as a great power. And I, I frankly think that's, you know, China's more than that. Um, you know, the Soviet Union was a great power, but at the peak of Soviet power, they were only 40% of America's GDP. Right. They were largely isolated from the international economy, uh, and they didn't really have a, a vibrant and robust you know, sort of domestic base of technological innovation. Um, you know, China has already surpassed us in terms of purchasing power parity. Uh, if they continue on the track that they're on, you know, they could equal our GDP in a decade. Um, they're integrated into the global economy largely as a result of U.S. policy for many decades, um, and they have a very vibrant, you know, kind of domestic base of technological innovation. Some of which, for sure, they've stolen, uh, you know, or otherwise, uh, you know, gotten their hands on. Um, but much of it, they're they're developing on their own, you know, with world-leading companies and and technologies. Um, my frustration was that, you know, I I hear a lot of U.S. rhetoric and you know a lot of U.S. assumptions about. Uh, about foreign policy, and it feels as if we're living in the 1990s still. Um, and, you know, when I when I look at how China's emerging, when I look at what they're doing technologically, militarily, um, I think this is a challenge that is, you know, is far greater than what most in the U.S. Uh, have, have assumed that it is. And, you know, the conclusion that I draw from that is, yes, on the one hand, uh, if we're going to look at this challenge realistically, um, I don't think that kind of restoring American primacy. Um, let me be more specific, restoring military primacy um, in the way that we've enjoyed it you know, since the end of the Cold War, uh, in my opinion, is a, is a realistic goal. Um, but I also don't want anybody to think that, well, all hope is lost and we might as well just you know, board the lifeboats and you know, get away from the mainland. Like, we, we still have the ability, if we think differently and act differently, Um, to formulate a national defense strategy, working together with core allies and partners, uh, particularly in the Asia Pacific region, first and foremost, Australia, uh, to defend our core interests and to to ensure conventional deterrence, uh, such that uh, we don't have to rely on nuclear weapons for everything. um, But we also have the ability to keep this competition peaceful into the future. Um, that's going to require us to think differently as far as ends, ways, and means go from our national defense standpoint. Um, but I think that it's achievable. Um, and I think that it's something that uh, is, is actually uh, quite doable because many of the things that I bemoan in the book as far as uh, you know, the, the increasing difficulty of projecting military power as you know the precision strike revolution continues to proliferate around the world, um, well, you know, the bad news is that projecting military power has become really hard for America. The good news is that if we make the right decisions, projecting military power can be really hard for other people too. Right. Um, those are the things that I think we need to embrace and, and think differently about. And if we do, I, I think we can actually formulate a national defense strategy, you know, multilaterally with core allies and partners that that can address our needs into the future.
0: I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and, and Chris, I mean, we, we put out a report last year at the Study Centre called uh, "Averting Crisis," where yeah, we, many, uh, we thanks, mate. Uh, we we share um, many of the judgments that, um, that 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 you've come to as well over the years. Um, um, but like you, um, it's an optimistic report. It's a it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a bold one and it's a sobering one. But it's an ultimately an optimistic report. Uh, and, and the way that we frame it is that um, to rebuild conventional deterrence. Um, in the Western Pacific, and that is to say, to find ways to deny China the capacity to exercise undue influence or coercion over regional allies and partners. Um, It is ultimately a matter of working uh, to our strengths, but working together. Collective defense is the framework. And I think you say in the book as well that it's only by working with frontline allies that the United States is going to be able to restore a favorable balance of power in the region simply because of geography simply because of political will simply because of the credibility of threats made by countries on the front line that are that are standing up for their core interests Uh, to me this is a this is an open space it's going to require a lot of thinking on both sides of the pacific and in the pacific um, to not just put bets on the technologies of the future but to put bets on the operational concepts and the diplomacy of the future that will allow us to, to realize that do, do, would you would you kind of come to those same conclusions as well
1: uh, yeah a hundred percent, and you know I think we in the united States um, we, we we talk a big game with respect to our allies and partners, um, but I think that the reality is we don't do nearly enough to enable allies and partners to bring them into you know our actual operational thinking and planning. Um, there still tends to be this assumption that well you know if if things really get sporty um, you know the united states will kind of do a lot of the heavy lifting and you know the japan's or australia's you know well you know we'll just sort of sort that out when we get there my my sense is that establishing collective deterrence um, or collective defense you know kind of um, sustaining deterrence in the future Is is simply not something the United States is going to be capable of doing on its own. It's not something that that any of you know, or the Australia, or Japan, or India, or whomever, um, you know, the 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 balancing act that we're going to have to pull off is going to require the collective power of all of those countries working together. Um, You mentioned the geography; that's another core piece for the United States. We we're we're not going to be capable of, you know, kind of magicking a lot of military power across the Pacific on very long timelines. Um, you know, assuming that we're going to have sanctuaries from which to operate, uh, that time is going to be on our side. Um, we're going to have to be much more present in the region. We're going to have to have a lot more military capability forward. Um, and that inevitably puts us in the position of being much more reliant upon, much more dependent upon uh, our allies and partners, the military capabilities that they bring to bear, um, the interoperability uh, that those systems have with ours, um, and ultimately the, the political interests and sensitivities that those allies have uh, to, to what our goals are and how we're going about achieving them. Um, the U.S. isn't gonna be able to go this alone. Um, and ultimately, I think that points back to the, the point you were alluding to, which is, um, you know, ultimately, I think what we're trying to defend here is uh, you know, is a system and a way of operating a rules-based order that we very much, I think, share values Uh, in in how that system came about and what we want it to look like in the future. Um, That is something that inevitably brings us together. Um, And I'd like to see us getting back a lot more to that. Uh, I think the past several years, unfortunately, have been, uh, you know, featuring much more, um, you know, kind of the United States picking fights with allies on things that we should be, you know, kind of drawn together over. And my hope is that, uh, you know, in the future, we'll be focusing much more on the things that bring us together so that we can, uh, you know, kind of actually pool our power and resources to, you know, to address these emerging challenges.
0: Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I fully share your, your point about the need um, for if that is to happen for the United States as well to uh, reform some of its ITAR restrictions and some of its right. the ways that it has either until now, um, sort of made it more difficult to share advanced technologies to share military planning to share um, objectives and the self strengthening activities that lay behind achieving those within the tent, so to speak, within the five yep. within the US Australia Alliance. And I think that there's a lot of work that the center has been doing to sort of advance that cause. Uh, look, I want to turn now to some of the questions. Um, folks in the bottom of your screen, you'll see a Q and A box. If you haven't already, please do add your questions in there and I will uh, come to a selection of them. I'm going to go first, um, Brad Glosserman, uh, to your question. Brad, a good friend of both of ours, uh, I'm sure Chris um, is is asking about uh, is asking about how your recommendations and, and really your framework differentiates from the recommendations that Bob Work um, has advanced over the years. And I think in particular um, the the framing that the Brad's alluding to is the third offset strategy um, that uh, was the, was championed by him during the Obama administration, and I think which still exists to a certain extent, um, although under different language. Do you embrace the third offset? Do you go further? Where do you sit on that
1: issue? Yeah, I I think the, um, look, Bob, Bob work is someone I've learned an immense amount from. Um, you know, he's, uh, he's a friend, he's been a mentor, um, you know, and I think he did an immense amount, uh, to, to begin shifting the department to a focus on great power competition and emerging technology in the time that he was deputy secretary. Absolutely. Um, I think that actually, you know, much of what the department is doing right now is a continuation of the work that he began. Um, And, you know, I, I, I think a lot of what I'm writing in the book is very consistent with the things that he was advocating at the time, which, you know, I was very much kind of working from the other side of uh, Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill and uh, doing my best to, you know, support the budget requests that were coming over for these kinds of advanced capabilities. And then um, wherever possible, you know, trying to free up additional space in the budget for for more of that kind of work. Um, I, I think the, to some extent, you know, there's a, um, you know, uh, a military officer who once made the comment to me that the third offset's an interesting idea, but we're still struggling to get through the second offset. Um, and I think there's a, there's a large degree of truth to that. Um, I, I think with respect to the third offset as well, you know, there's there's a lot about it that, that still needed to be fleshed out. Um, and, and honestly, a large part of the reason I wrote the book was that I found a lot of the conversations that we were having in Washington about emerging technology and national defense just didn't close for me. Um, you know, the, the, the question that I kept coming back to is like, well, so what? You know, what what are these technologies going to allow us to do differently? How are they going to allow us to operate differently? Um, you know, at, at the 30,000-foot level, know, the third offset is a, you know, it's a compelling idea. Um, But, you know, what what I think the Department of Defense, uh, the Congress defense industry has needed to do um, is now take that several levels down to, okay, so we understand at a general level, you know, what we're trying to do that, you know, what these technologies are, why they're important. Um, But how are we going to actually build military forces differently? How are we going to operate them differently? Um, How do we ensure that this doesn't become a conversation about uh, simply just kind of retrofitting all the things that I've had for many, many decades uh, with artificial intelligence or kind of new technologies? Um, So we're still operating in the same ways with the same things and just, you know, making it incrementally better through the addition of new technology. Um, I think ultimately, you know, what the third offset was about um, was really thinking about if we took these technologies for what they are and what they allow us to do. You know, how would we build our military totally differently? How would we operate it totally differently? Because um, that's the opportunity we have right now. So, in that respect, uh, you know, if, if that I think was the the impetus behind the third offset, um, you know, it's something that I was supportive of, supportive of then and supportive of now.
0: Yeah, and I think that some of the common threads between between the, the third offset and your book here is also a focus on continuous experimentation, rapidly yep. cycling that to operators, improving it placing bets on those that work, defining clear operational problems like, you know, Bob Works challenge now how to sink 350 Chinese ships in the first three days of conflict in the Western Pacific and unleashing America's latent uh, innovation power to solve those problems, uh, I think, are some of the ways forward. And that's a nice segue to to the next question by Ramesh Balikrishan, um, who's asked, how much um, has China progressed on integrating AI and battle networks into their military systems um, uh, that really lifts that threshold for us to then find ways to respond to it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately the answer is we don't know um, because they're not exactly, uh, you know, making that a transparent process. Um, and I think the, you know, the bigger challenge here, uh, when, you, when you talk about a technology like artificial intelligence, and machine learning, um, it's not visible to the outside world, you know what those, you know what what level of capability those systems have, right? So when you look at the, you know the PLA military parade and hypersonic weapons and autonomous aircraft and um, you know other unmanned systems that kind of go parading down the street, um, those could be very manual systems with, uh, you know, not a lot of kind of advanced technology inside or under the hood. Um, They could be entirely autonomous lethal weapons systems um, or lethal autonomous weapons systems. Um, We as the outside world uh, can't see that. Um, It's not like the cold war where we can count warheads with satellite photos. Um, This is something that uh, we we can only assume based on the level of effort they're putting into it, their declared intention uh, that these capabilities are going to be central to the future of military power the national effort that they've embarked upon, you know, from a military civil fusion standpoint, to bring these technologies into their uh, national defense and their military. Um, I I look at it that way from the standpoint of, it's very clear to me what they want to do. um, And I presume what they are actively seeking to do and spending money to do, how much progress they made, I I can't say. Um, I just know that they're waking up every day trying to make progress. And that's something that I think needs to be, Um, It needs to create a sense of urgency in the United States. And and frankly, I think in our allies and partners about um, what we are doing to ensure that, you know, we don't fall behind and end up in a position where China is writing the rules of the road for how emerging technologies, how advanced technologies are governed and used um, with respect to uh, you know, military power, uh, as well as, you know, uh, you know, social control and surveillance and, um, you know, kind of, uh, domestic oppression things like that.
0: Yeah. And, and, um, just on, on, on the, on the need to reform and not knowing how much China has already achieved that being unknowable from, from the outside. I mean, is it, is it fair to say though that the, the way that China has embraced the reconnaissance strike complex right now, that is to say, it's highly advanced and long range sensors and long range missiles, as well as some other enablers and some other military platforms to lock the US out of the Western Pacific at greater ranges that, that which is not really, a, it's certainly not, a, not an intelligent uh, battle network at this point in time, but that already that imposes on the United States and on other allies, the need to embrace technologies of the future to achieve operational objectives of the present. And I'm thinking here in the book, you talk about one example in in, in, towards the end of the book uh, in the chapter that I like called how the future can win. um, You talk about the the joint surveillance target attack radar system um, that the Air Force was updating and how that was an example of where a vulnerable old platform gave way to a more distributed resilient system of networks and of, of sensors rather. Is that an example of the, or can you explain that example as a, as a way of using technologies of the, of the future, if you'd like to solve problems of today? Yeah,
1: yeah I, I think, you know, your, your point about where we stand vis-a-vis China's right, you know, I mean, without even getting into artificial intelligence and advanced autonomous systems, I think, you know, the US military approach has already been significantly disrupted by the systems that China has already developed and fielded. Um, from long range sensors to, uh, you know, kind of advanced precision weaponry. Um, emerging technologies are just going to make all of that worse. Um, you know, I think from the standpoint of the JSTAR system, um, you know, it was, a, it was an experience for me that, um, you know, I, I think was, a, was an interesting, um, you know, kind of example for how a system that is in many respects kind of built to resist change Um, built to, uh, you know, kind of keep systems going to keep money flowing to legacy systems, you know, whether that's from the standpoint of the constituents that are the, you know, kind of vested interests in the Department of Defense who want to continue to operate those systems, or the members of Congress who want to continue to budget them and, you know, base them in their states and districts. You know, it, it was an example of how everything that you would think would lead you to you know, one outcome could actually be kind of changed and used to to lead to a different outcome. Now, the thing I would say is that you know we've not actually yet built uh, the replacement uh, that was envisioned as the replacement to J Stars. I mean, that's still right. very much a work in progress, and uh, I would I would argue that implementation of that is um, you know looking a little rocky at the moment. Um, but the very that's fact the best that example to- that's. <laughs> Well, I mean, this is the problem of writing books is that, you know, you're, uh, you're writing about moving targets and fixing them in place. But look, the, the, the point stands from the standpoint that conceptually, the the Air Force was able to come forward and say, we cannot keep pouring billions of dollars into a system that is not going to survive against a great, a great power competitor. Um, even though we're, you know, there are plenty of instances and examples where, you know, in many other parts of the, uh, you know, U.S. military, we we're doing exactly that. We are pouring huge amounts of money into unsurvivable systems. Um, the fact that they were able to kind of marshal the, uh, you know, kind of political support for doing something that uh, was was very counterintuitive for Congress to do. Um, and, and sort of take it on faith that we were able to kind of, um, or that we, that we you know, would have a better system if we embraced this kind of distributed battle network approach and that we had the time in which to build it. Um, that to me was, was victory enough. And I'll tell you, I mean, as I say in the book, uh, I mean, that was one of the toughest fights that we had that legislative cycle. And it was literally the last decision that got made at the very senior levels of the Congress. Um, and it very easily could have gone the other way um, you know, we could be dumping you know billions of dollars into an unsurvivable you know recapitalization of a legacy system right now.
0: Yeah, and and look, I mean, the book is just full of examples, um, as is the case in every country, including Australia, of of militaries investing in large scale systems that um, align with vested interests, either in districts that build those systems uh, or vested interest in the services uh, that you know, not for, not for, not for any nefarious reasons, but want to build the best platforms that they've always taken to battle and want to fight the last war better in the future. And the buildup of that in the United States and scale the U S defense budget running into the billions of dollars each year invested into legacy systems that are essentially non-starters in the kinds of combat environments that we're talking about. um, It's truly shocking. I mean, from a taxpayer's perspective, it's a shocking, it's a shocking revelation. Um, Australia would respond to it by calling a Royal Commission that would send up a lot of discussion around these sorts of things. It may not actually act on the problem at the end of the day, but would will certainly air those grievances. Um, right. I want to zero into a more productive way of tackling that problem and go to a question by David Astice here, which, which is this, to address the issues that you've raised this morning what should the U.S. military and the alliance priorities be for the next president and the next secretary of defense so that we're not pumping billions of dollars into the wrong systems and so that we are building battle networks uh, for the yep. war tomorrow?
1: So, I mean, I'll give, I'll give a little bit of a different answer on this. Um, you know, the, the temptation is just to start rattling off, you know, kind of developmental programs that... Uh, you know, should be the things that we think are going to replace, uh, you know, kind of those big legacy systems. I mean, for me, it's much more about getting them, getting the process right to make the decisions correctly. Yeah. Um, that you know, the reason I focus on the kill chain uh, as a concept is because that is the outcome we are trying to achieve. Um, we have got to set up processes. Uh, you know, I, I would argue as an alliance. Um, I imagine this applies equally to Australia, and it certainly applies to both of us together. Um, that are focusing on, you know, what combination of capabilities will allow us to close those kill chains faster, um, at greater scales, at greater speeds together, Um, and and make that a, a baseline that we are consistently performing against and using to actually drive programmatic and budgetary decisions year over year over year. Now, there are going to be certain systems that we can't open up to that kind of competition. Um, you know, or they don't lend themselves to you know kind of annually recompeting the program. You know, an aircraft carrier is not something that you're going to recompete every year. But there are programs across our militaries, um, whether it's weapons, you know, cyber effects, command and control systems, uh, you know, kind of lower order systems. You know, certainly kind of newer, lower cost unmanned systems, um, where the incentive should be every single year. You've got to open that process up bring in new entrants, bring in people who, uh, who want to compete new capabilities and constantly focus on, you know, what is that mixture of capabilities that's going to get me better understanding, better decision making, better action, faster, more repeatably. Um, that's the way we need to make these budgetary decisions rather than sort of resorting as we often do in the United States to just kind of assertion and argumentation um, as to, you know, where to put uh, the lion's share of our defense spending. Um, this has to be much more, you know, kind of real world focused, much more experimental, um, and 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 much more focused on, you know, demonstrating real capabilities. Um, to me, that's that's the that's the process that I'd want to see us start putting in place, rather than, uh, you know, kind of competition in the sense that we're going to buy PowerPoint presentations and paper airplanes from industry on the promise that they're going to build them over the next five to ten years. Um, we can't keep doing that um, and we can't have, you know, quote unquote, sort of programs of record that uh, are like tenure at university where once you get it, it's forever yours. Uh, it's got to be something that every year, you know, vendors are forced to come back and compete against, you know, uh, you know, other capabilities that that vendors or other competitors believe can, you know, can perform better. Um But what the DOD has got to do, what, you know, we as an alliance have to do is kind of create that level playing field and sort of the objective criteria to say, uh, you know, this is how we're going to evaluate, you know, what mixture of capabilities are most effective at generating that understanding decision making and action.
0: Yeah, look, I think that's that's um, a a pretty good place for us to land. We've got a couple of minutes left, Um, Chris. So I wanted to, again, just go back to a point in the book where I think you draw some really interesting um, uh, lessons from the Eisenhower administration. And you argue that essentially Eisenhower, um, who was himself a product of the military industrial complex, and then went on to be um, uh, one who wanted to ensure that it was disciplined and acting responsibly in the national fiscal and strategic interests. Um, he was the one, of the one of the presidents who probably um, put the most emphasis and took the most risks on finding the best and brightest, setting operational problems, for them to solve, letting them run with it and letting the Mavericks punch their way through the bureaucracy. Um, do you have any sense that um, that context of, of innovation, that period really, which developed Silicon Valley into the beginnings yep. of what it is today, uh, can come back? And, and how, how can you, in your vantage point there at Andruil Industries or other um, folks in the innovation sector in Australia and the United States, do their part to, to get back to that era by working with Washington?
1: Yeah, so I, I think, look, the good news is that there are, uh, in the United States, there are a lot of people in the technology community who are eager to do national defense work. Um, you know, a lot of the oxygen gets sucked out of the room by the folks who write letters to the heads of their companies saying they want nothing to do with uh, U.S. military and national defense work. Um, But when you when you actually kind of look at how many people are signing that letter as compared to the overall number of people in the company, you know, it's it's a pretty small but vocal minority. Um, The reality is that I think, you know, the technology community in America, um, frankly, like Washington itself, you know, is a pretty diverse place. Um, You know, there are a lot of people who want to do this work, who'd be open to doing this work because they're patriots, because they're capitalists, because they're engineers who just love hard problems and national defense is, you know, replete with hard problems. The, the challenge, I think, is really on the government side to, to, to do a lot of more of what Eisenhower did, which was, you know, be much clearer in defining the problems, picking priorities. You know, what are the things that we absolutely have to get right at scale um, as compared to, to other things that are of lesser importance? Um, concentrating the bets that we make, concentrating the resources that we need to put into those bets, um, and having a process to very quickly determine, you know, who are the winners that I want to to sort of build these future programs around? Who are the performers who are going to be critical providers of that next generation capability? Um, th- that to me is something that I think, you know, our defense establishment, you know, broadly speaking, DOD, Congress, industry has has really failed at in recent decades. Um, you know, we we sort of Uh, you know, try to let a thousand flowers bloom. We make lots of small bets that never scale into anything significant. Um, We've got to start concentrating more um, on priorities, you know, sort of the people who are capable of delivering on those priorities um, and then really pushing significant resources into the programs that are, that are best positioned to scale and the performers who are best positioned to scale them. Um, That's, that's ultimately like how America got to space. That's how we developed ICBMs, the nuclear Navy, um, a lot of other capabilities from that early Cold War period. Um, it's not to say that it was all perfect, um, but I think there are a lot of lessons that we need to relearn from that period, um, and uh, and and recognize, you know, that that sense of urgency that we had in that period of time, that belief that we had that there was something worse than change, um, that to me is something that uh, you know we 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 can't get back to fast enough.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Chris, I know this is not your intent of the of the term, but. But really, and to end on this, I think that's, uh, that's really where you need another kill chain. Uh, it's, it's a kill chain. It's a meta kill chain is where understanding within the defense industrial congressional complex, deciding on how we're going to go about this problem, and then acting fast and collectively, both within the United States across um, different vested interests, as well as within the alliance and partner network is the only way that we're gonna be able to get after these sorts of challenges outlined in the
1: book. Uh, so maybe that's your sequel. Um, <laughs> I, I, when you said another kill chain, I thought sort of uh, where you were going and I've come to believe that I'm a first time author and I think I aim to keep it that way. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, no, it, I, I appreciate it. But um, yeah, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold fast for the moment and uh, you know, not, not, not dive into another book project.
0: Well, look, uh, we'll, we'll revisit that conversation in time. How about that? <laughs> Fair enough. Chris, Fair enough. It's, been, it's been an absolute pleasure. Everyone, again, um, get a copy of this book. Um, it will keep you up at night because it's gripping, but also because its judgments are very, very sobering. They couldn't be more relevant to Australia. Um, read it, think about it, and uh, let's keep the conversation going uh, with the United States Study Center uh, on ways Uh, that we can go about um, addressing some of these problems both independently and in an alliance and partner context. Chris,
1: thanks for your time today, mate, and um, look forward to, to talking to you in the future. Great. Thank you very much.